This is a crowd podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the aftermath of the sinking, the devastating effect on families, and the confusion and mystery about the survivors list, and what happened to the phantom captain. Why do some people believe a group of crew members were rescued, but then forcibly disappeared? Why was an arrest warrant issued for one of the captains if he was meant to have drowned? What caused the Swedish government to change its mind about raising the wreck? This is the secret history of the Estonia with me, Stephen Davis. Helicopters took survivors to rescue centres off the coast of Finland. Those who were picked up by ferries had a longer wait. They stayed on board while divers searched for any remaining signs of life. 94 bodies were recovered from the sea. The rest were either swept away or went down with the ship. Carl Erik had been rescued by the Viking line Isabella. Of the 23 people who made it through the night in his lifeboat, we think seven died during the rescue. The survivors were looked after by crew members who warmed them up with body heat and then handed out dry tracksuits and hot tea. Then my fingers and hands started to move and, uh, and so on, and uh, we were interrogated by the Finnish uh, police. They had been taken probably by a helicopter to the ferry and they were asking us questions, our phone numbers, where we were living, whether we were traveling alone or not and, and things like that. And having given all this information, we all thought that, okay, now they will inform our families and everything. And then when we were feeling already better and moving around a little bit more, we started to ask, have you now informed our uh, families that we have been rescued and so on. And then it came out, no, we, no, no, no. This information was not for, for informing anyone. Uh, and then we were offered the possibility. So that was maybe an hour or two later after getting rescued, we got the possibility to make a phone call home from the captain's bridge. This is several hours after they've been rescued. Hours in which his family would have heard about the sinking but wouldn't know if he was dead or alive. During our interview, I could tell that this was one of the hardest things for him to talk about. Even the memory of the suffering his family went through was almost too much to bear. He told me about his cousin hearing the news. He was often listening to the radio in the night and so on, so he got the news about uh, the sinking of, of Estonia uh, very early. And he called immediately uh, my mother in Sweden. And uh, so my mother uh, got woken up by this phone call. I think it was six o'clock in the morning or something like that. With my cousin telling her that the ferry uh, has sank and him asking whether I'm on, um, on the ferry. And uh, because he knew that I was traveling all the time. And, um, and then my mother, of course, answered how it was and so on. And then, then later on, uh, other relatives, when people heard about the news and so on, um, people would call each other and ask and, and so on, you know, because the community, Estonian community in Stockholm is small and, and uh, everyone had people, you know, traveling and a lot of people were going here and there and so on. And, 
and uh, and my mother was telling everyone that uh, please uh, I cannot uh, speak with you now because uh, if Carl Eric is uh, rescued then I have to answer to the phone calls so in this sense uh, in this sense uh, it's sad that my mother had to wait and other hour or two. She could have gotten the information earlier, but of course she was a lucky person who got good news and not bad news. And it's better than to wait uh, than the other way around. So many families got a very different phone call that day. The call they were dreading. 852 lives lost. Devastating for the families and friends of those who perished, and also a collective shock for the nations at the heart of the tragedy. Sweden lost 501 citizens, Estonia 285. Here's the Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt at a press conference the day after the sinking. Can we just start by saying that this is the biggest disaster Sweden's experienced in modern times? Obviously, everyone feels great sadness and a deep connection with their relatives and their families. And it will certainly dominate much of our country's agenda over the coming days and perhaps weeks. This sort of thing shouldn't happen to put it mildly. And now every stone that may needs turning must be turned to see what's occurred. As politicians grappled with investigating the cause of the disaster, families across Europe mourned. This is me arriving in a small community in central Sweden called Lindisberg. 33 families from this area are someone in the tragedy. I'd arranged to meet Anna Karen, Angelica and Linnea, all of whom lost their mothers on the Estonia. We met in the local hotel in the centre of town, overlooking a lake. The town felt strangely quiet. We seemed to be the only people around. We ordered some coffee and some juice for the kids. And Anna Karen started telling me about her memories of first hearing the terrible news. Uh, well, I was 16. I remember that getting up early that morning and getting ready for school. You know, you're 16, you have to do your hair and your makeup and all that stuff. So I was early and I went downstairs and I went by my my father's and my mother's bedroom and my my father just said something about this uh, ferry sinking uh, on the Baltic Sea Uh, and by then I was just well okay I said okay and I just uh, went on to the kitchen and I started making my breakfast and then I just I remember it as if just you know like uh, just stopping and freezing maybe kind of a freeze you know my body just froze and I started like shaking in my hands and by then I didn't know it was that my mother was on the Estonia that it was just that fairy but it's something inside somewhere I just knew so I never got to school that day we um, 
I remember the phone ringing a lot, you know, we, we got some information about the boat and it, that um, it was that boat that my mother and her colleagues were on. But it's kind of blank too, you know, the first couple of days, it's hard, it's hard to remember. It was, it, was, uh, it was just strange and chaotic. And I remember watching the TV screens the whole day and all these names started rolling, you know, the survivors and the ones who didn't make it. And my, mother, my mother's name was, wasn't on any of those lists. So then, you know, you started to hope and maybe something was, she didn't get on the boat or... When you're young, you have these fantasies about maybe she never got on or maybe she's on an island somewhere. And I think still at this day, some, sometimes when I... I my 16-year-old inside of me still has that hope, you know, you know, when they, because they never came home. Angelica, who was just eight at the time, told me she had a strange feeling the day her mum left. She wasn't looking forward to this trip at all. She said that to my grandma just before they went. Did she think about not going? I don't think so. But me and my brother said that, don't go with the ferry, it's going to sink. I don't know why we say that. Right. So you you told her that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's quite amazing. Yeah. And and why, why was she not wanting to go? Was she not, was it a kind of didn't want to socialise, didn't want to take the trip or? I think it was both. And maybe she had a bad feeling about the trip as well, because we said those things to her, I guess. I asked Linnea where she was when she found out. She was just seven at the time. Uh, I have just come to school and suddenly my dad appears and he shouldn't be at school at this time. He, he should be at work. And um, he, he just took my arm, didn't say anything and lead me up to principal's room where my sister already is. But at the principal's office, no one did tell me what had happened. All the principal said was just go home, take your time and just yeah, go home. And so I didn't figure it out until I come home. Then my father told me. So you knew that ferry had sunk and your mother was on board. Did you still hope that she was going to be a survivor? Yeah. Yeah, all the time. So uh, I didn't, like Angelica said, some, something was wrong that morning that when she left. I remember that I, I sat on her foot, like children do and hold their legs and they walk around with, well, you're sitting on the foot. And I was crying because I, I said to her, that you, you shouldn't go. Uh, the, I just had a feeling that something was wrong and I was just seven years old. So yeah, she just kissed me on the cheek and just told me to have my room cleaned <laughs> until she got back. That's two of you then who had some kind of premonition almost. Yeah. And so how long was it before you actually learned that she hadn't survived? Uh, it, it took so, so long time to just figure it out and just believe in it. So it took... Yeah, many years. You know, before I thought that maybe she's on, a, on an island or she's been shipwrecked on an island or something like that. So it took a long time. Right. But you're, she must have by then appeared in a list of those who had yeah. gone down with the ship. Yeah. But obviously just didn't. 
No, I, I was too young to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what was the immediate effect on the community here when the news came through and there were so many among the dead? Well, I guess it was kind of, you know, shocking, of course, for everybody. And I, I, and I experienced it as kind of being, I don't know really how to express, but kind of numb, you know? I mean, time stops and it's, it was just a strange, strange feeling. And, and from my point of view, I felt like when I was kind of walking the streets, everybody knew when everybody was like looking at you. But maybe it's just, you know, it's I mean, a 16 year old's mind. My experience was that it was all over the press and it was not in, in, not in a good way. No. So you, you all three of you saw ended up seeing photographs of your of your mother in the papers. Yeah. And there were a lot of, you know, tabloids, more like, you know, that kind of press, you know, like when you went out, when we have a kind of meetings, you have cameras in your face and then no one really asks you. Like, this is a very different situation. We sit here and we agree to stuff and we talk about it. But then it was more like, you know, I don't know what you call it, but cover stories or whatever, you know, what heter de här löpsedlar? Yeah. Tabloids, yeah. The idea that paparazzi were shoving cameras in the faces of kids who'd lost their parents is pretty disgusting. Even the mainstream news coverage of the tragedy in Sweden was strange. Many journalists were reluctant to challenge the official government line. What was it about this story that was scaring people off? Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And Murder in House 2. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself? You suit yourself. You're going down. You can binge our groundbreaking audio fiction series, Eliza, a robot story. I have 302 minutes, 34 seconds, and two milliseconds to tell this story. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Welcome back to the secret history of the Estonia. In the first episode, I mentioned someone called Arvo Pitt. He was, or is, the Estonian sea captain on board. But he disappeared, or at least that's how it seems. Let me go back a bit. Arvo Pitt was a 39-year-old graduate of the Tallinn Maritime School. Although he was a captain, he wasn't on duty the night of the sinking. He was on his way to Stockholm to take a test, so that he could pilot ferries into Sweden by himself in future. Except he never made it. And no one knows what happened to him. He was seen handing out life jackets on deck seven during the sinking. During the rescue, a witness said she saw a man later identified as Pitt in her life raft. According to a helicopter mission log, 24 people were lifted from this raft and taken to the Finnish island of Uta, 
but a later report said only 23 people did. Pitt's name was missing. News coverage the morning after the sinking reported Pitt as among the survivors taken to hospital. Family members even claimed that they'd seen him on television. You might be wondering why any of this matters. Well, as a senior crew member, Pitt could have crucial information about why the ship sank. A news article in The Independent three days after the sinking carried the headline, Vanishing Captain Holds Key to Riddle of Disaster. In the article, a friend was quoted as saying, We know he's still living. This is not the first time he's gone away for a long time. We're used to it. All we can do is wait. She said television pictures had clearly shown his face. The Estonian transport minister was quoted as saying, I would like to think that Captain Pitt escaped and is for some reason in a state that prevents him from talking himself. He suggested that the ship's Swedish and Estonian owners might have reason to conceal his location. But then he also said the possibility of Pitt having survived was one in a million. Clearly, Pitt's whereabouts were seen as a key element of the early investigation. On October the 7th, nine days after the sinking, an arrest warrant was issued for Arvo Pitt by Interpol, the International Criminal Police Organization. It said, By many witnesses, Pitt was among these persons who were rescued from the disaster. However, there's no information at the moment about location of Pitt. Pitt could be the key witness to the investigation. In case the wanted person is located in your country, please trace him and inform us immediately. This means that police forces across the world had been put on alert to find Arvo Pitt. This seems like a strange thing to do if you think he is drowned. Back in 2005, I managed to track down Pitt's wife, Syria. This was more than a decade after the tragedy, and she was still convinced her husband was alive and had been made to disappear. I made detailed notes during our conversation, and I've got them in front of me here. She said she learned from official channels that he'd been taken on board the rescue helicopter Q-97 on the night of September 28th and transported to the island of Uta near Finland at 4.20am in good health. At 4.47am, she said it had been recorded that her husband had transferred to another island, this time by helicopter Y-69. She even told me there was a tape confirming her husband's rescue, a recording of a Swedish helicopter pilot saying he rescued Pitt and brought him to Uta. But, she said, when she asked the authorities for the tape, the official response was they no longer had the recording, although they did confirm that one had existed. In total, there were seven crew members whose names appeared on various survivors' lists, only to be later removed. There were also two passengers, twin sisters Hanley and Hanka Hanneke Veda. During our conversation, Surya told me about a letter she'd written to the former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt, asking about her husband, as well as the other Estonian crew. Here's an extract. I... Our relatives, friends and acquaintances have watched with deep perplexity the disappearance of Avo Picht and the other six Estonian companions. We are surprised by the official, 
but not a legitimate position of the Estonian disaster investigation, which ignores the escape of the above-mentioned persons, closing its eyes to the facts and testimonies, thus protecting the honour and dignity of our countries. The letter was never answered. Suya Pets sadly died in 2006, never finding out the truth about what happened to her husband. But on my research trip to Estonia this summer, I managed to meet with a relative of one of the other crew members counted as part of this mysterious group. Her name is Helen Bogdanov. She was the very first person I interviewed in Tallinn. Her father, Viktor Bogdanov, was the doctor on board the Estonia. But to this day, she's still grappling with the mystery of what happened to him. It's caused her immense pain and suffering. Here's her story. On the morning of the 28th of September 1994, Helen's family, like so many others across Estonia, were frantically looking for any news. We were constantly checking all the lists and the TV was on all the time and the phone rang and and the radio was on and of course everybody were waiting. It was a national catastrophe. It was the second day when we were called uh, from the S-Line terminal. S-Line was the ferry company who operated the Estonia. So this was a call from the ferry terminal by an official. And um, my mother picked up the phone and... uh, uh, the person, or the official uh, person from terminal, told her that there were two young people sent by the wife of a ship's purser with the message that uh, Viktor Bogdano is in the hospital with her husband. This message was so clear that the person's wife had spoken to um, her husband and also asked uh, about other ship stuff, other people from the team who had been saved from the ship. And then uh, she got an answer from uh, her husband that yes, the ship's doctor is with him in the hospital. So actually with him in the same hospital in person after the disaster. And of course, my father was on those lists. The lists Helen is referring to here are the initial survivors lists I mentioned earlier, the ones which also included Harvo Pitt. And as well as the phone call from the ferry company, they received even more confirmation. There was a fax coming in the next day after the catastrophe or something. It was stated that my father was alive. This fax came from the Ministry for Social Affairs, an Estonian government department. Helen clarified with us afterwards that the exact wording on the facts was found, which was understandably interpreted at the time as found alive. Helen told us that staff at the ferry company were so confident in the reports that when her uncle visited the S-Line office, staff congratulated him, hugging him in celebration that Victor was alive. But then contradictory information started to surface. His name no longer appeared on survivors' lists, and his family still hadn't located him, but he was still appearing in news reports. In uh, October 15th and 16th, when uh, his name was okay, still okay in Swedish and uh, Finnish newspapers, 
different newspapers. It was written that he was the only officer who stayed alive, the only one. And my uh, uncle, he tried to uh, contact the journalist and first he couldn't uh, get in touch with uh, him because he was away from the office or something like that. And next time he called, it was told he doesn't, wasn't working there anymore. So several weeks after the ferry went down, yeah. your father's name appearing in newspapers as the only officer who survived. Yes, only one who survived. And to this day, you've never seen him? No. Never heard of him. A little bit after the accident, there was a strange car next to our house. And we saw it because uh, we knew our neighborhood. Some time passed and, uh, and there were two young men in good physical shape. And they came in and uh, knocking our door and started to ask questions from my mother about my father. And uh, have you had any information and have you received something? Uh, why did they do that? And why did they come to our house? Like, they didn't explain. Did, did they show any identification? No. My mother thought they were like, okay, this is a fantasy. Maybe this is this um, couple. This, um, the intelligence services. No, something like yeah. that. It's like uh, this police. Uh, so, but they were knocking on the door and they were saying, had, had she heard from your dad? Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, they, they were there and uh, asking different questions. But my mother was like uh, a little bit annoyed. And then, uh, of course, you get a little bit frightened as well when uh, those like many black appear to your door. <laughs> and uh, like as if we had been trying to hide him. Weird. Later on, after the accident, many times, like Russian-speaking people are calling to our house and uh, asking if our father was uh, home and like as if nothing had happened. With these weird Russian phone calls and secret agent types turning up at their door, it's not hard to see why Helen still questions what actually happened to her dad. And without a body, the family was never able to get any closure. We were so sure that he'd be alive that uh, my mother actually didn't uh, allow me or didn't want me to go to this uh, service. They took another boat to the Estonia sinking place and there was like they threw the flowers on the sea and my mother was like, oh, it's for those who uh, mourn and uh, we don't do that. Actually, it would have been better if I had done that my life probably. <laughs> Regarding my psychological issues, <laughs> it would have been better, but uh, but my mother was so sure. So you were never allowed to mourn him? Mm, not uh, actually. Yes, I, I didn't want to talk about my father like first two years at all, but I got angry. That was my uh, way of coping with the stress. Uh, I just blocked it out. And you just said to me now, all these years later, you, you still have PTSD? You still feel like you're struggling with the psychological issues of, of what happened? Really? And uh, I just went to a psychiatrist now uh, a week ago because of my um, anger problems. <laughs> I'm constantly angry. <laughs> 
and she really diagnosed me with that PTSD. What did you, apart from the psychological effects in terms of your life, your career, what, what did you end up doing and how do you think things would have been different? I think totally different because my father was sort of my guide and he was my source of security and uh, he was the best father you could ever wish for. So I think that uh, he would have led me gently through life. I don't know. I just couldn't cope with it. And do you think if you hadn't had this, this strange business of not knowing, obviously if you'd had the surety of knowing what happened to him then, your life would have been easier? I think so, yes. Because, you know, there was a time in my life where I thought that the social media is really taking too much time from my life. And I was like, oh my God, I just need to quit this Facebook. <laughs> and then I was like, I can't. My father might be alive. And this is the only source where he can, like, without any problems, uh, look up uh, what I'm doing and uh, be informed. Because if he's somewhere on an island that has internet <laughs> access, you know, those fantasies and those conspiracy theories, they're somewhere in my in my brain. I'm not sure why, but subconscious, uh, yes. Let's go back now to the days immediately after the sinking. We heard earlier that Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt said no stone would be left unturned to find the cause. After speaking at this press conference, he travelled that afternoon to Turku in Finland, the centre of the rescue operation. Here, there were reports that he declared the sinking was the result of a design mistake. Quite how he could have worked that out so soon is a bit of a mystery. It's a really significant statement because it was surely impossible at this point, before the rescue operation had even finished, to have any idea of the cause. The Swedish government was in a handover period. The new prime minister took office just a week after the sinking. He appointed a minister for the disaster who stated that the wreck was at a great depth. Except it wasn't. The sea is just 80 metres deep at that point. A media debate then started. To salvage or not to salvage? What happened to leaving no stone unturned? Next time on The Secret History of the Estonia. Somebody said, we're not going to recover the bodies because we're going to be traumatised. But it was more traumatisation actually leaving the bodies there that we could have recovered. 25 years later, we still talk about the Estonia and all wonder why. Actually, there was a crime investigation going on. It was a crime scene, and they took the decision to do this in the crime scene. That's not normal. There is something really wrong with this entire um, handling of the sinking. The Secret History of the Estonia is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Samantha Syke. Mixing and sound design is by Rory Auskari. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. To listen to the entire series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
If you haven't already, take a listen to the first Secret History series, The Secret History of Flight 149. It's the tale behind how a passenger plane got caught in a war zone, leaving hundreds of people at the mercy of Saddam Hussein. Hear from the human shields who were held hostage in Kuwait, and from those who spent years searching for the truth. Find the secret history of Flight 149 on this feed. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.